church. The Bible reading tonight is from John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscriot, Um, to portray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. But when he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also, you also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thanks, Matt, and uh, good evening. It's good to have you here tonight as we continue this series entitled Choices uh, with the somewhat laborious subtitle of uh, Bearing Witness to Jesus in a pluralistic society. Just kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Uh, And uh, I thought as we take some time to open tonight, I just wanted to, again, very briefly um, outline and review the kind of underlying premise of this series, the idea of both choices uh, in a pluralistic world and also that of bearing witness. So bear with me as I briefly do this. I don't know how many of you um, ever did a collage in, uh, in school. Uh, did anyone do that? I don't know. You've, some of you probably, you know, you do that uh, now. It's probably some sort of, um, you know, wonderful electronic gizmo where, you know, you get things off Google Images and put it in another program and then whack it into another bigger program and off you go. But in my day, the teacher brought out a pile of magazines, uh, Time Magazine and National Geographic and usually the Sears catalog for whatever reason, and armed with a pair of scissors, off you'd go and you'd just cut stuff up. Uh, you'd find something you liked or just something that kind of, you know, draw your attention to it, you know, words or pictures, whatever it was, and you'd whack it all in. The great thing about doing collage art, as far as I was concerned, is you couldn't do it wrong. I mean, how, how can it be wrong? It's just whatever I want. I just met, mush it all together, and there, I'm an artist, or, uh, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, this, this is a good example, I think, of what pluralism does for us, because the thing about collage is that everything uh, is, is kind of taken out of its context and put into a new context. So pluralism, in terms of a formal definition, is when you have two or more worldviews that coexist. 
so you always have lots of different ways of understanding the world. That's always true everywhere and every time in history. But usually there's been a dominant worldview. So there's a dominant way that society understands itself and then a whole bunch of secondary ones. In a pluralistic society, all the worldviews coexist. All the different ways of understanding the world and our place within it, what the big problems are that we face and the solutions to them are all equal. Which means that when we talk about the choices that we make in life, we can often end up with a collage effect. That all our choices are equally valid. You ever hear that language? So we make valid life choices. We don't talk about whether it's right or wrong, or true or false, or moral or immoral, because that gets a little bit dicey pretty quickly. Uh, if everyone's decision is valid, we don't want to then kind of muddy the waters by talking about if it's right or wrong. No, they're all just valid. And so people can live their whole lives making up their life like a collage. Oh, we cut out a little bit of this choice and we whack it on, and we cut out another choice over here and we whack it on, and we don't really pay any attention to whether they actually match. They can come from completely different catalogs, completely different books, completely different worldviews that are actually mutually exclusive, but because all the choices are valid, we end up with a collage effect. You with me so far? So if you were to, ch if you were to chart and map the, what our decisions might look like in our world, you can often end up with this sort of a, a, a chart, just scattered. Choices all over the place. No real rhyme or reason or pattern to our choices. You might know people whose lives look like that. You can never tell exactly what they're going to be doing because, well, it's different every day. They're just making valid choices, right? And they're just whacking them all over the place. For us as believers, those who are following after Jesus, it gets a little bit complicated for us, though, doesn't it? See, because while our world doesn't use language of right and wrong, true and false, moral and immoral, we do. And yet, when we bring our language of true and false, right and wrong, moral and immoral to our world, it just doesn't make sense anymore because all we hear is valid discussions. But as those who are following after Jesus, we don't want our lives to look like that. We don't actually want our decisions to be scattered all over the place, some sort of collage. We actually want to see some sort of, shall we say, a cluster that follows the line of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Uh, there's no one way to follow Jesus, but there are certain patterns, aren't there? Uh, not only that we find in the Gospels, but the rest of the New Testament and nearly 2,000 years of church history, kind of patterns and ways in which we ought to live. Now, if you, if you consider a disciple's life as one where the decisions are scattered around the line of following Jesus and compare it to what our culture might look like, you can see why our lifestyle might draw, uh, draw some questions. If our decisions are all clustered in a particular way, people are going to start saying, why do you only make decisions along that line? And that, of course, gives us opportunity to talk about well, what we have seen and heard and experienced in Jesus, which is essentially what a witness does. As I mentioned last week, witnesses are not charged with trying to prove that something's right or wrong. If you ever are called to testify in a court of law, it's not your job to prove that someone is right or wrong, guilty or innocent. Your task as a witness is to honestly say what you saw or heard or experienced. That's it. And that language actually, I think, really helps us in our world. So instead of kind of storming around telling everybody that they're wrong or right or true or false, we can actually just bear witness to what Jesus has done, what we've understood about Jesus, and allow them to make the decisions. Those are the two premises that I think undergird this little series. 
And so last week we had a, a brief look at the choice of community. That choosing to be here bears witness to what we believe God has done in Christ. Now, we're not just a group of people who have gathered here tonight because we all live within close proximity of the church and we have nothing better to do on a Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. We've gathered here, we believe, because in Jesus, the church, the gathered men and women who have been saved by faith in Christ Jesus are the place where God dwells by His Spirit. That somehow we mediate the presence of God in the world. That if people want to meet God, shall I say, face to face, they ought to come to church. Because this is where that happens. Now that might strike you as a little bit of a big assumption for a church, but that's essentially what Scripture says. We bear witness to the fact that uh, when we choose to follow Jesus, we don't do that alone. But we do it together. There's a whole bunch of things that we kind of choose when we actually choose community. And tonight I want to look briefly at the choice of service and have a bit of a look at this passage in John chapter 13. If you have your Bibles with you, have a bit of a look at it. I don't know if uh, any of you um, have ever done a, or participated in a foot washing service or a foot washing, I want to say ceremony, but we're Baptists, we don't kind of do the whole ceremony thing, but you know, at a camp or something, it's a very popular at camps, right, where there's that kind of foot washing thing. And if you've ever experienced it, it's, it's a little bit weird. Uh, it can be very moving and it can be very significant, but it's essentially really weird uh, because the only person who washes my feet is me. Uh, I have a shower and I wash my feet, and that's kind of the way it is. If I come to your place for lunch, I don't expect you to wash my feet. Uh, I had a bath or a shower this morning. I have clean socks on and my shoes have covered my feet. It's all just a little bit weird if you want me to wash my feet when I come into your house. You might want me to take my shoes off. You follow me on this one? So when we come to understand, in order to understand what's happening here, we need to kind of get our heads around what foot washing meant for Jesus and his companions. And essentially, foot washing was kind of like, you know, washing your hands before dinner. It was kind of that essential preparation for dinner. Go wash your hands. Uh, We're about to eat. And off you'd go and you wash your hands. Foot washing was similar. In part because people didn't have baths every day or showers every day. They didn't have clean socks. They wore sandals and the roads weren't kind of uh, covered in bitumen and concrete. They were dusty. And so feet were often really filthy. Uh, But the idea that you would come to someone's house and not wash your feet wouldn't have made any sense. There was actually a proverb in the Greco-Roman world that said, if you went into something, you went into a job or you went into a, a, a game or you did something and you weren't adequately prepared, you had gone into it with unwashed feet. That's how essential it was. And, and the, the routine was, there were a couple of different ways it would work. For instance, if uh, you came to my place, uh, you don't have servants, I don't have servants, you came to my place for dinner, I would nonetheless have a basin of water and a towel, and you would wash your feet as you came in. Occasionally, if I deeply loved you and I was deeply devoted to you, occasionally a host might wash your feet. But it was more than likely that you would just wash your own and then you'd come in and we'd have dinner. Be all there is to it. If, however, someone had a servant, then the servant would end up washing the feet. It was kind of a, you can imagine, it's a servant kind of job. But people were kind of used to the whole premise. Jesus and his disciples would have had their feet washed thousands of times over the course of their life. 
Now, when Jesus went to eat at the house of a Pharisee, a religious leader, uh, chances are when they came in, uh, there was a servant who washed Jesus' feet and the feet of the disciples. When they went to Mary and Martha's house, uh, friends of Jesus's, uh, kind of two sisters and a brother who lived together, we don't hear that they had any servants. Uh, Martha was making lunch at one point in time. Chances are there was a bowl of water and Jesus and his disciples washed their own feet. It was just kind of standard. So in this context, there's nothing, shall we say, extraordinary about the foot washing itself. What's extraordinary is what John tells us about that in chapter 13, just before Jesus does that. If you have a look in verse, uh, in verse uh, 3, it says this, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Just let that sink in for a moment. Jesus knew that the Father, that's God the Father, had put all things under his power. There was no um, individual, no governor, no general, no emperor, no king, no priest who was greater and more worthy of honor than Jesus was. There was no institution on earth that deserved more praise than he did. There was nothing at that point outside of his control, nothing that he could not have chosen to do. Everything had been placed under him. The Father had given him all authority, all glory, all honor at this point in time. So, what does Jesus do? He gets up from the table, takes off his outer garment, wraps a towel around his waist, begins to wash his disciples' feet. And it's linked there. Jesus knew that all things have been placed under his power, so he began to wash his disciples' feet. There's a link between the power and the authority and the majesty that Jesus had and his decision to serve. And if we're going to put this in kind of a, a modern-day context, it might be helpful to actually think of it as someone who cleans up garbage. Right? That's probably a better example. Right? I wash my own feet, you wash your own feet. That's just kind of the way that it is. But think about people who clean up rubbish. Right? Uh, it's a very common exercise, isn't it? Uh, and if you're at home, chances are you too have picked up rubbish. Uh, there's nothing uh, kind of altogether humiliating about that. It's just the way it is. Uh, we as human beings tend to make a lot of rubbish and someone has to pick it up. So, you know, we sweep up around the kitchen or we pick up stuff in the yard or we collect all our rubbish and throw it in the bin. That's pretty normal, isn't it? But if I'm out at the movie theater, for instance, and someone spilled a bucket of popcorn, I tend to just leave it on the floor. There's someone who's paid for that. Besides, if I scoop it all up, my, my hands might stick to the floor and I will never leave the cinema. Right? If I go to the footy uh, and uh, someone's left, you know, I, I can't imagine this would ever happen, but someone's left an empty beer cup uh, on the ground, right? I tend not to pick it up unless I'm trying to make a giant snake, in which case I'll be picking all of them up, right? That's, there's someone else to do that. If I'm at Miranda Fair, I don't go picking up rubbish. There's someone else to do that. But someone has to do it, right? Uh, and it's a very similar sort of deal. So let me put it in this language. Jesus, knowing that all power had been given to him, that everything had been placed under his feet, got up and filled up the dishwasher. 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had put all things under his control, got up and started mopping the floor. Jesus, knowing that all things had been placed by the Father under him, got up and began to wash up. This is the language. Now, you can see why the disciples were a little bit confused, even though they didn't kind of get Jesus entirely. It's still kind of odd behavior. And so it is when Jesus sits down, he asks them, do you understand what I've done? And this is what he then goes on to say. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. But I don't believe Jesus actually wants us to practice foot washing every time we get together. I think the principle is that of service. He wants us to choose to serve. He wants us to be those who choose service first, who look for the good of others before we look for our own good. That's the choice. And when we make that choice, we are bearing witness to some very important things. We're bearing witness, first of all, to the example of Jesus. And if you begin serving, if you are consciously serving other people, people are going to start asking. Whether it's just the nature of our current culture or whether it's something inherently human, we tend to look out for ourselves first. We tend to serve ourselves first. And if you begin putting other people first, well, people are going to ask questions. Why are you living that way? Why are you doing that? Why are you always serving? And we bear witness then to the fact that, well, Jesus did because he came not to be served but to serve. We also, though, bear witness to the upside-down economy of the kingdom where greatness is measured by our willingness to serve. Remember that uh, that passage where uh, the disciples are arguing on the road about who's the greatest? You ever had that discussion in your life group? None of you? None of, none of you are willing to say that you have, right? Have you ever thought? No, I'm not even going to go there, right? The disciples have this debate. Who, which of us is the greatest? How good is that, right? And Jesus gathers them together and says, listen, if you want to be great, you actually have to serve. If you want to be first, you have to be last, which just sounds so Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, what are we supposed to do with that? I mean, if you're last, you're last. You're not first. You can't kind of make it nice. Hey, I'm not last. I'm first in the kingdom of God. No, you're last. You lost, right? To say that you're the greatest by serving, it's like, oh, come on, Jesus. What is that all about? And yet we do have a couple of examples in our own world where this kind of makes some sense for us. So this past week, Nicole and I uh, went into the city. It was kind of a belated anniversary night out. We finally managed to kind of observe it, even though it happened weeks and weeks ago. Uh, And we went in, uh, stayed at night in a hotel, and uh, had a really nice meal. And when you have a really nice meal, if you have ever had the opportunity to enjoy really fine dining, not that we enjoyed very fine dining, but it was quite nice, you'll know that one of the things that sets it apart is not just how pricey it is, but the quality of table service. We had excellent table service. A young lady who didn't uh, impose at all, 
uh, came over. Uh, when we told her what we wanted, she didn't write it down. I was amazed because I would have forgotten what I'd ordered like five seconds later. Uh, she wanders off. She comes back with the food. The, the drinks came out at the right time. I, I had ordered the cheese platter for dessert. She reminded me of the cheeses that I'd ordered. I was like, that's great. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, just wonderful service, filling up the, the, the cups, unquestioned, really lovely service. And in those circumstances, really fine service is actually celebrated, isn't it? That makes sense. Uh, we want really fine service. When I go to a really nice restaurant, it doesn't happen very often, so I want it to be a nice experience, it's lovely to have someone who's basically there to make sure that I have a nice night, who's there to make sure that nothing kind of gets in the way of enjoying my meal. That's what you're paying for, right? Jesus essentially says that is how we ought to be all the time. We ought to be like excellent waiters and waitresses in every situation and circumstance we find ourselves. We should always be those who actually want the people that we are serving to have the best time that they can. We want the people around us to feel really good about themselves. We want the people around us whom we are serving to have an enjoyable encounter with us in every situation. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Now, this is where it does get a little bit tricky, though, doesn't it? Because when we talk about service, it's actually a bit of an ideal. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, there was, there's a book by a fellow by uh, the name of Daniel Doriani. It's about applying uh, the Bible to, to life. Uh, and he talks about ideals, and then he uses as his example the, the command, honor your father and your mother. Now, when I first read what he said, I thought, really? I'm pretty sure that honor your father and mother is a command. It's not some ideal. But he makes this point, that how you, how you obey that command changes over time. He says, so when you're a young child, how you honor your father and your mother is going to look different than when you're a teenager. Uh, and it's going to look different again when you're in, in, in university and still living at home, which is going to look different than when you get married and you move out of the house, which is going to look different again when your parents are old and they need full-time care. You, you, can't, you can't honor your parents like, uh, when, when they're in their 90s like you did when you were three, right? It's just not going to work. Things have to change because our circumstances change. And so for all of us, how we go about serving will always differ and change, depending on whether we're talking about being in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, uh, in our retirement, wherever it might be. So those of you who are still living at home uh, as uh, high school students or whatnot have an opportunity to serve in, in a particular sort of way. Uh, you can't do everything around the house, but there are certain things you can do. You can help with the laundry and empty the dishwasher and take out the recycling, all those signs of things. For those of you who are parents, uh, when you're parents and you have young children in particular, life is basically about serving, making sure that they're cleaned up and fed and put to bed and uh, you, the laundry's done and all those sorts of things. As children get older, that service begins to change. For those of you whose kids are grown up and have moved out of the house, you have a different opportunity to serve. For those of you who are entering into retirement, it's different again. 
So all of us, for every situation that we find ourselves in, we need to be thinking creatively about how we are serving those around us in both our actions and in our attitudes. You know, some of you are actually in the service industry. That's your job. Your job is to serve. And before you think to yourself, what a great disciple of Jesus I am. I I serve 40 hours a week. How good is that? Let me ask you what your attitude is when you're serving. Because I think Jesus wants more than just for us to tick the box of, yep, I served for 40 hours this week. It's your job. What's your attitude? What's your attitude toward those you're serving? Is it Christ-like? Is it truly humble? Are you seriously and significantly concerned for the good of those that you're serving? These are some of the questions that we have to ask. And I think serving is, 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 is actually quite, I think, complicated in that sense. It's quite complicated. You know, for some of you, you're, you're in a service industry, and so service is kind of what your job is, and so that presents certain difficulties. Others of you run your own business, and how you serve is very different. Some of you are at uni, and you're studying. How do you serve in that context? All of us need to be thinking this sort of thing through. Let me give you two scenarios, one that's quite significant for me and another that I think is is kind of a good example of what I'm talking about. Uh, One of the indicators for me about the state of my heart, my attitude towards service, is actually on my lengthy commute when I park my car in the parking lot and walk to the church. And the challenge for me is when I see rubbish between my car and the building. I'm not getting paid to pick up rubbish, but there is absolutely nothing to stop me picking up a McDonald's bag or a Coke bottle or a beer bottle or whatever has been left between here and there. On my bad days, I just walk right past it because that's beneath me. I'm too important for that or whatever it might be. I've never had to explain why I've walked past the rubbish, but that's probably what I'd mutter about. On my good days, I just pick it up. I walk it in here and I throw it out or put it in the recycling bin or whatever it might be. It's not the most important thing in the world. I don't scour the parking lot looking for rubbish. Again, that's not my job. But there's something about my heart, I think. If I walk past rubbish on the way to work and I just leave it sit, it says to me that my heart is probably not right. I need to be focused on the good, not just of myself, but of those around me. It's a very simple thing, not even a massive service to to our community, but something that's fairly important, at least for me. You may have something that's similar to that. Let me give you a scenario. For those of you who do work, uh, there's probably a little kitchenette at work. There's two things that are true about every kitchenette that I've ever been to. All of them have a sign that says, please don't leave this messy, and all of them are a mess. I think all you need to know about human, uh, humanity is right there, right? Uh, and now, let's be, let's be honest. I mean, you know, who has time to be cleaning up after everyone all the time? And that might not be the task. But you know, it's so tempting, isn't it, to just go and rinse out your cup and seeing as everyone else is there, no one's going to miss one more. What if, as a bit of an example, you washed your mug and one other mug? and maybe a couple of spoons. You don't have to clean up the coffee machine. You don't have to do any of that sort of stuff. But just is a simple way of practically beginning to serve. And there are lots of those examples in our lives all the time, aren't there? Small, relatively insignificant things that we could do. Uh, uh, Perhaps you've uh, heard me talk about reverse garbage Jenga. 
You know what Jenga is? You get all the bricks, right? And then you kind of pull one out, you put it on top, and you hope that the whole thing doesn't fall over. You played that game? It's a lot of fun. Reverse garbage Jenga is when uh, you, the basic, the, the rules of the game are, I don't have to empty the garbage if the garbage doesn't fall onto the floor, right? And so as long as you can balance the garbage on top of the pile and it doesn't fall off, it's not full, right? Some of you have played this game, haven't you? Some of you are probably experts in said game. And it's another little test, isn't it? I mean, is it the end of the world if you don't take out the garbage? No, it's not. But what does it say about your heart when you look at that and say, I don't have time. I'm too important for that. Someone else should do that, not me. There's an opportunity several times a week in your home to practice being like Jesus. To take the rubbish out before the last piece of rubbish falls onto the floor. And it's bigger than that. There are all sorts of opportunities for us to serve. And we need to be looking for them to the best of our ability. I think in a similar sort of way, can I say, it's important that we serve in our community of faith as well. I think it's pretty critical. When we serve in our community of faith, I think we bear witness to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, changing us to be more like Jesus. I think we bear witness to the reality of our new family that we are brothers and sisters and we serve one another, and also our readiness to serve, that we are kingdom citizens and we're looking for opportunities to serve. And it's pretty important that you do serve. We are a not-for-profit organization, I suppose you'd say, and most of what we do could not be done without your service. And I'm really encouraged by the number of you who serve, whether it's in stewarding and welcoming or up on the platform and the music team and the worship team on the tech team, uh, in our youth ministry or our children's ministry, in all the different ways. It's really quite important. But can I just say that the most important act of service that you perform is not here on a Sunday. It's actually tomorrow. In your family, in your workplace, your school, your neighborhood. Because when you serve here, no one's going to ask you why you're doing that. We all just assume it's because you're trying to be like Jesus or you're kind of a nice person and like to help out. People aren't going to ask you to bear witness to what you have seen and heard and experienced about Jesus when you serve here. So as important as that is, what I really want to hear and encourage you to do is to serve on Monday. Serve tomorrow. Find a way to do that so that people begin to ask you why you're doing it. And I'm very encouraged when I hear about that. And I do, I hear bits and pieces. The easiest thing for me to see is how you serve here, but I hear bits and pieces. People who are volunteering their time with an organization, such and such an organization or whatnot, I find that really encouraging. I'm delighted when I hear about people and their, the choices that they're making to serve other people. Whether it can be a meal, whether it's helping people move, whether it's helping people paint, whatever it is. I, I'm truly delighted when I hear that sort of stuff. But the choices that we need to be making as disciples, as followers of Jesus, need to be Monday to Saturday. Choices to serve where people will notice and ask us why our lives look a particular way instead of scattered guns. Because when we begin to serve, we begin to look exactly like Jesus did, who had all things under his control and yet chose to serve instead. So we're going to take some time now 
to celebrate communion at the two tables on the side. Uh, John's account of Jesus washing his disciples' feet takes place on the night he was betrayed. John isn't too concerned to tell us about the institution of the Lord's Supper or to explain the Passover. He's more interested in the foot washing. But we know that these events happen at the same time. Uh, If um, you've been around for a while, you know that one of my favorite passages is Philippians chapter 2. And in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, Paul says this to the Philippian church. He says, in your relationships with one another, so in your relationships, in the relationships here, have the same attitude of mind that Christ Jesus had, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." What we celebrate by taking a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice is a reminder that Jesus has served us with all power, with all authority, with all majesty underneath him. He chose not to use that for himself, but to use that for us. And in his death, we have received life, and life abundant. A life that uh, is stronger and more robust than all of our failures and all of our sin, all of our ignorance, all of our mistakes, all of our rebellion. And so tonight as we take a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice, I'd like to encourage us to take some time to confess that stuff, to be reminded that Jesus died because of our sins, to be reminded that we have a salvation that is firm and true in Him. But I also want to encourage us to be thinking about how we might begin to bear witness to the example of Jesus. So I'd like to give you a bit of a challenge. Uh, Before you go and get a piece of bread and a cup of juice on uh, the table at either side, I'd like you to identify one place, one situation, where you believe that you can begin to serve this week. Maybe it's the kitchenette. Maybe it's reverse garbage Jenga. Maybe it's some other way in some other relationship, but to think about how you can serve. And once you've kind of come up with one, and if you're struggling, ask the Holy Spirit to help. Once you've come up with one, you've taken some time to prepare yourself, then go and get a piece of bread and a cup of juice. And remember Christ's great act of love and service for you that has given you life eternal. Uh, There'll be a few people uh, around each table who are there if you would like someone to pray with you. For some of you, the decision to serve might actually require a great deal of courage. For whatever reason, uh, there's going to be some humility involved. There might be forgiveness that's needed. There might be some sort of step of courage that you're going to need to do something different. Well, if you want someone to pray with you about that, as I said, there'll be a few people there. If you're visiting with us tonight... Uh, and you count Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then we invite you to participate with us, uh, to take the bread and the cup. And what we'll do is in a moment is I'll, I'll uh, pray. And then when you're ready, uh, when you've not only taken some time to perhaps confess your sins and failures to God and thought of an idea, a place to serve, go and get the bread and the, and the cup of juice and bring it back to your seats. Uh, and just take some time then uh, in, uh, in the relative stillness to take and eat and take and drink 
And then after an appropriate length of time, uh, Dave and the team will come and lead us in a few songs to close our service. So would you allow me to lead us in prayer before we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, your wonderful love for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that though all authority and power and dominion and glory has been given to you, that you did not consider equality with God something to be used for yourself. But instead, you chose to use all that you had for our benefit. And as we take these little elements, a piece of bread and a cup of juice, we thank you for the reminder that we have been saved from all of our failure and all of our mistakes and all of our rebellion, all the things that would separate us from God. We thank you that the relationship that we have with God is secure because of what you've done for us. And I pray that we might have a real sense of assurance of your deep love and of your salvation. But I would also pray, Holy Spirit, that for each one of us who has placed our faith in Jesus, that you would reveal to us a way, a place, a time, a person where we can serve this week that we can serve to be more like Jesus, where we can bear witness to the upside-down economy of the kingdom of God. I pray that you would lead and guide us, and that in this kind of sacred space and time, that we might do some significant business with you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.